Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Full Cup Podcast. I am your host, Libby Switzer, sitting here today with my dad, Craig Berthold. Hi, dad. Good. Good. A man of many words. Hi. How are you doing? Okay, so we have recorded two podcasts so far on human sexuality, and we are following up today with numero tres, third time. There's a lot to cover, and we we're hitting all the topics. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're we're not going to spend a lot of time. We'll probably start off with maybe a little more information about what we talked about our last visit. Uh, and then I think you asked me to talk a little bit more about uh, uh, pornography and mm-hmm. what's happening in our world today because of pornography. And then we're going to talk about uh, masturbatory behavior, or uh, teenagers, and this uh, men and women who have to deal with issues of their masturbation and, and how they struggle with it and uh, the things that they go on with that. So Sweet. Yeah. Sounds, some, sounds like some light, uh, light reading. Have any today. questions you want to start with there, young girl? Um, <laughs> no, I'm going to keep the questions to a minimum. Uh, okay. My mom was just in here and my dad said, you want to sit down and listen to the, or listen to the podcast we re- while we record? And she said, I don't speak French and I don't talk sex. <laughs> and I thought that was pretty clever. I had never heard that one before. It came from a great line from Oprah, one of her Oprah shows. Oh, Mom really? was watching it and told me to watch it. And it was pretty funny that the woman got up and said, well, and that happens with a lot of people. For a lot of men and women, they, they have difficulty talking about those things. So, Well, yeah, it's not the most comfortable topic. I think it takes practice talking about it first of all like with your spouse or with anyone even with friends i have girlfriends and the topic will come up and some people will just steer you know leave the room or steer clear and are not interested in that conversation while others are like clinging for someone to talk to because there's not a lot of people that want to talk about it but um you know like anything i think it it shouldn't be something that you feel shameful or anything about. It should just, and the more you practice, the easier it becomes and everyone's got issues. So if you just remember that. I, I agree with everything that you just said, Libby. As a matter of fact, a lot of times people come in to see me and they say, we're having marital problems. We need to work on our marriage. And I say, let's talk about sexuality and intimacy. They say, we don't need to talk about that. That's fine. The amazing thing is once people start learning how to communicate without threats, without fear, with confidence in themselves and in the other individual, they can talk about those kinds of things. And it's amazing how quickly people start talking about intimacy, sexual intimacy with each other. All of a sudden, they find themselves able to talk about all kinds of things, finances, issues with their children, all kinds of things, because they now know they've talked about intimacy. They didn't violate each other's trust. They felt confident about themselves. They felt confident about the person that they're talking about. So having a tremendous amount of confidence in yourself, as we've talked about before, loving ourselves and loving our spouse and trusting that nobody's going to try to hurt somebody. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes in the realm of sexuality, people are easily offended. Yes, There's a big issue, as we talked about last time, with performance anxiety. Oh, no, he's saying I'm not, or she's saying I'm not, or I'm not feeling good about this because I'm not good at that. And if we could just sit down and talk about it, it's amazing how much people can resolve those things as long as they love each other, trust each other, and they're not trying to attack or put mm-hmm. each other down or feel 
being threatened. And a lot of times the spouse is not intending to offend, but the other spouse hearing the information is offended because they don't feel that they're adequate. Mm -hmm. This happens a lot of times with men and women. We now know that one woman can't describe what sexuality is for another woman. We've talked about that before. Once they learn to trust each other, love each other, have confidence in themselves, but just as much confidence in their spouse and know that they're different from each other. Yeah. We emphasized that mm-hmm. last time, I think. So. Yeah, and that, that's okay. Okay. Oh. Well, let's okay. dig into... Well, I'm just going to talk about a couple of things to add to what we talked about the last couple of weeks. And, and first of all, uh, I want to talk about the red and white intimacy. We talked before about making love as both red and white. Red yes. we'll talk about as the, the temporal, the sexual, the, uh, for lack of a better word, the animalistic getting turned on and all of those kinds of things. And yet the white, which is adoring and cherishing where you adore and cherish and love that person. Mm -hmm. Well, most couples, when they're young and they first fall in love, they're really turned on by each other. They're hot for each other. They want to hop in the sack. They want to make babies. They want physical intimacy. So a lot of times in the first years of their intimacy, it's very red-based. It's all about, okay, let's do it. And we got to work towards, we got to perform and we've got to attain orgasm or we've got to do these kinds of things and let's turn each other on and let's get turned on and let's have this great sex in the world and it's very red. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times people lose track of the other part of it, which is the white, which is, I adore you. I cherish you. I missed you today. I want to talk to you. Let's talk in the bed. Let's visit. Let's, Let's do all of this white stuff. Men, as we talked about before, have 10 to 20 times the amount of testosterone uh-huh. running through their body. So they're very red-based. And women, they can get to that red place, but they go through the white door. So a lot of couples who have spent the first, from the time they're 20 till they're 50 years of age, it's all been red-based. Uh-huh. Then after 50, they go, oh, wait, uh, I'm not attracted to him anymore. Or... Well, you, you change, know, you get older, your body changes. Yeah. It When she was 20, her hips were this wide. About it's 60. 20 inches. Now they're about 50 <laughs> inches. inches. And all of a sudden, oh, wait, our intimacy was red. She now has 50 inch waist or hips. Oh, no. Oh, no. It's not. And so they lose track because they're still focusing on the white. Sometimes, no, they're focusing on the red. Excuse me. Thank you. They're focusing on the red. And the same thing happens with women where, oh, he he has a cleft chin. He has muscular arms. In addition to, I trust him. I love him. He adores me. So there's white. But oftentimes it's a focus on the red. And now he's got a big belly. Yeah. And the belly against her belly hurts her. And he weighs too much or he's too this or he's doing this. And so what couples do is they say, well, we're not attracted to each other red anymore. So. Never mind. We'll just close yeah, the door. We won't do that anymore. And I see couples every day in my office in their 50s, 60s, 70s, the oldest, 92, coming in saying, you know, we, we haven't been physically intimate for eight years. We haven't been physically intimate for six years or 12 years or whatever the case might be. And what I find is the neural pathways in the bedroom have always been based upon red pathways. And they forgot the white part, mm-hmm. like you would when you're little. And you said, I adore her. When you were in the second grade, you said, oh, Sally's so cute. You can still have those white feelings when you're 50, 60, 70, 80, 90. And if white is the captain, 
instead of the red, you can find that there can still be incredible intimacy, but it's not upset because he's too heavy or she's too heavy because they love and adore each other and cherish each other yet. But if they've lived their whole life focusing on the red and never learned to love their spouse's white, then they get older and they shut down. And they come into my office and I said, you've got to remember, even if you didn't, you have to learn how to start loving your spouse whitely, adoring her, adoring him, cherishing him, just wanting to be with them. And sometimes that takes a lot of work to bring it back. Yeah, a lot of practice. But it is absolutely possible to bring it back. And do you have any ways that you would suggest bringing it back? Any tips? Well, one of the first ways is just asking, can you go home and touch each other this week? Scratch each other's back. Kiss each other again. And can you keep the kissing and the back scratching just on the white? If they realize... I'm still a beautiful, intimate being at 70, 80, 90 years of age, and this is still a vital part of me, and I can still love this person and myself. And let's talk about that for a minute. How important is it for that woman and that man to continue to love and adore themselves within that unison, themselves in the bed, but also love the person that they're lying with? Yeah, I think that's got to be hard because... Even in my youth, it's hard. So as you get older, you know, just saying like people who are critical of their bodies because we have, you know, the media that says you should look like this and act like this. And and young, beautiful people don't feel that way. So as you get older, that's got to be even harder. And what a great thing to be able to work through and learn and probably have more a more fulfilling relationship than just a red orgasm. Exactly. It's more focused on love and you could have great sex that could be more fulfilling because it isn't, because it's more than just this one carnal thing. Absolutely. And I tell couples in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, you need to focus on your white if you want to have great intimacy when you're 90. If they focus on the white way of loving each other, it's spiritual. Yeah. So that's what I'm talking about okay. in Tennessee today. Cool. Uh, <clears throat> the other thing that I was going to talk about, one other thing, and this, this is just a part of the pornography thing and the damaging stuff that it does to people. For years, uh, I, I would get asked to talk to the youth uh, about sexuality, and these, these especially young boys. And I say to these boys, when you go to a PG-13 movie and they show, let's say, a, a couple of young teenage girls or whatever, women, in their swimming suits with the boys. When they show that woman in the swimming suit, do they show fried egg-sized breasts or tomato-sized? Tomato-sized. Tomato-sized. And men go, oh, yeah, okay, that's what it's mm-hmm. all about. And so that creates a lens in their head. And women do the same. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, uh, five years goes by, and they find the most beautiful woman in their lives, and they're getting married, and on their wedding night, they, they're going to be intimate. They've had the wedding. They go to their room, and she's got fried egg-sized breasts. And he goes, oh, she will be hurt, devastated. It's so important. I'm finally giving my virtue to this man. I'm going to touch him and let him touch me, and he frowns at me. Mm-hmm. And that affects so many people. We talked about in one of the earlier sessions, we have the steering wheel of our life. We have the steering wheel of our sexuality. 
And so often historical things that happen set us up thinking, oh, no, I don't look like this, or she doesn't look like this, or he doesn't look like that, or they've changed. But if you're loving that individual white, whether she has fried eggs, none at all, or cantaloupe, that matters, but it doesn't matter so much because the major focus is in the white way of loving. And if you love your spouse white, you can accomplish anything. If you go to the red, you're in trouble. So this happens a lot with young men and young women in the realm of pornography. What do I hear uh, probably once a week? Husband is coming in with his wife and she wants a divorce because he's been looking at pornography and he's masturbating. Well, he says, it's no big deal. You know, men are like that. You know, we have a lot of testosterone. And if I'm not getting it from her, then I need to look at the porn and, and I'm masturbating in the shower or whatever. And she's, she's devastated. Mm-hmm. She's literally destroyed. And I have to explain it to him, a couple of things. This happens very often. The virtue of physical sexual intimacy in a woman, for I would even say probably most women, is this is the greatest gift I have to give you as my virtue. Mm-hmm. I will let you touch me. I will touch you. I will love you. And I give to you this, this physical body, this virtuous being that I am to you because I love you so much. Mm-hmm. And it's a wonderful experience. And they have this wonderful relationship. And then a couple of years goes by and find out that he's looking at porn. And the woman literally goes into a state of shock. It's like, huh? you, you don't love me for what I think, what I feel, for my virtue, for the wonderful, delightful woman I am. You only love me just like the porn. The only thing you care about is is my breasts and vagina. You don't even care who I am. And so many women come in and absolutely devastated because the feeling of what sexuality is is such a white-based issue of virtue. And now he's doing this, and that really brings people to end their marriages. Mm-hmm. What is he doing that for? That's disgusting. He doesn't love me anymore. And a lot of women do the same thing to themselves. They think, oh, no, he's looking at porn. So I've got to do all of the stuff to keep him interested in me so he'll stay interested in me. And I watch the porn, too, so I guess I better do the stuff that I saw in the porn. And let's talk about this for a minute. If that woman is now engaging in a particular style of sexuality and she feels like, oh, well, I guess to keep my husband, I'm going to have to do that. Is she doing that now because she chooses to? Or is it force-fed vegetables again? Remember in one of our first sessions, we talked about if you keep eating the vegetables you don't want to eat, how do you start feeling about the vegetables? Uh, You resent them. How do you feel about the person giving you the vegetables? You resent them. And how do you feel about yourself for not standing on your two feet? You resent yourself. And oftentimes then the marriage dies because she's trying to do it not because she wants to but because she's being forced to do it. I need to do this to keep him. He doesn't adore me if I don't do this. And you see why porn can be so devastating. This is just one of a thousand different reasons. Porn literally corrupts people's minds and brains. It sets up lenses. It grabs onto the steering wheel of their sexuality, not just for men, but for women also. Mm -hmm. And yet if we can stay away from those kinds of things and get back to loving men and women, red and white, red is wonderful, but white should be number one ahead of it. 
And a lot of times we're like that when we're 10, but then we go through puberty and boys go, hey, what the heck with that white stuff? Let's go to the red stuff. Whoa. And women go, oh, well, I guess we better go to the red. Oh, and women can go to the red too. I can't emphasize enough. Don't lose track of the white stuff. Adoring, cherishing, righteousness for term of word. So I'm going to leave that now and start talking about something else. So. Okay. Uh, the last thing today is a talk that I was asked to give about 100 years ago. I, I was asked by a, a, a pediatrician of ambulatory care, asked Craig, would you talk to these pediatricians about working with children and sexual issues as children? Now, between 6 and 11, I think we talked about that two weeks ago, that little children are very interested in sexuality not in the same way they were when they're 14 or 25, right, right. but they're still interested. Uh, the next time you change one of the children's diapers, lots of all the little children of the opposite sex gather around looking at what, what, what is that? What the hell is that? What, what are they looking at there? <laughs> and, you, and they're staring, want to see it. That's what little girls do with boys. That's what little girls, little boys do with girls. What is it? Okay. So between six and 11, it even increases more and we call it prepubescent sexual exploratory play. Okay. In other words, children are very interested. They want to know if they're not going behind the fence with their cousin and pulling their pants down, then what they're doing, they're looking at the pennies magazines going, did you see the pennies magazine? She had to draw. Well, or they bring in the National Geographic and say, daddy, look boobies. Oh. Yeah. And these are the kind of things that kids do. And a lot of kids really get set up because they're like, oh, that's disgusting. You can't do that. And it traumatizes them. Yeah. Instead of told, hey, look, this is a very appropriate thing for you to be interested in, but you've got to learn to train it. So go ahead. I don't mind if you check it out, but you got to stop this. You got to get a handle on this and stop this. Mm -hmm. One day when you're married, you get to share that with that person that you love more than ever. It's okay. I don't want you to feel guilty about feeling bad about it, but I'm going to, I'm going to put the magazine away. You yeah. got to look. We're, yeah. gonna, we're throwing that out or we're going to do this or whatever you want to. You can leave some people. I'll leave it out. Look at it. I don't care. As long as it's appropriate for that age. Now, let's talk about appropriate sexual exploration at six versus sexual exploration of a 14-year-old. Mm -hmm. There's a big difference. Yes. Which one is more focused on the red part? The older. The yeah. older child. Or if the child is 10 and the little girl is 14 mm -hmm. or the little boy is 18. That's when we get into abuse and different things like yes. that. And a lot of perps, all those years I did with child protection, those eight years coordinated the team there. A lot of per perpetrators figured that out. Oh, wait, children between six and 11, they're interested. So I can now take advantage of this, take my red, sick, depraved way of looking at sexuality uh. to those children. And I end up abusing them. And what we found years ago is it started, we would pick it up at about 12 when I was doing child protection. It had been going about five years. So we figured about seven when they were first abused by the perp. And finally they got to be 12 and I said, this isn't right. I got to tell somebody about it. And a lot of times children come in and that grabs onto the steering wheel of their life and they're now traumatized for the rest of their lives. And they come and say, oh no, I'm a pervert. I'm a pervert. Something's wrong with me. Mm -hmm. I think I may have talked about this. This was a woman that I saw who was a detective with the police department after hearing one of my lectures on prepubescent sex exploratory play, waited until everybody left, left the class and came up to me afterwards and she was crying. She says, I've been a detective for 12 years and uh, I've always thought maybe I've been a, a pervert and I abused my brother. And I said, what are you talking about? She said, well, 
when I was seven and my brother was six, we would get the tub together. And when we're bathing in the tub, uh, he would uh, stick tinker toys in me and I would stick tinker toys in his butt. And they would laugh and giggle about it. And I've thought all these years, I'm 40 some odd years of age. I feel like I'm some kind of pervert. I started laughing. Yeah. And so well, you can't be laughing. I said, oh, I'm sorry, but that's what little children do. Maybe you need to go rescue that little girl that has so felt traumatized by this and tell her it's only natural to be interested in that. Teach her the rules. We don't do that. This smile came off. The tears went away. She's 47 years of age. This happened 30 40 years ago, yeah. she's been packing this horrible experience that she thought was so tor- horrible when all it was was prepubescent sexual exploratory play. Mm-hmm. It's a very natural thing. You don't ignore it. You teach from it. You don't abuse. You don't beat. You don't scream. You just say, hey, this is one thing that's going to be much more important now. It's interesting. It's okay. But you're going to figure this yeah. out. I'll answer questions. You talk to them. They'll find more about it as they get older. Yeah. And you can answer those for them. Well, and that's good to, I don't know that I've ever been told those I'm sure I learned them in school in psychology or something about those ages but I have noticed with my kids or with other kids who are interested like when I've had a baby and I know this one kid's coming around the corner because they know I'm going to change a diaper oh they're changing a diaper I want to watch boundaries it's okay to say there are boundaries and it's but okay also, have- yeah, you don't want to shame or do that to little kids. Yeah, I also don't ever want anyone to think they're a pervert when it's just a natural part of growing up and part I, of the I, process. I think uh, your sister, I, I haven't heard, I've heard her talk about it, but this idea of boundaries, mm-hmm. boundaries are very important. But boundaries shouldn't have to shame or hurt people. Right. But it's still okay to have boundaries. Yeah. And you have boundaries around your children and teach your children to have boundaries too. Yeah. And say it's normal. And, you know, you may cross some of those boundaries once in a while. And I might say, hey, you're crossing the boundaries. Stop, don't do that. And they're going to do that and find out where the boundaries are over their life. And that's what I'm going to take now to this story. This is a story that I learned um, about 100 years ago, but a long time ago. And, and this was in a church book. I, I add a couple of pieces to the story. Uh, and I, if it's somebody else's story, I don't remember the name on it. It was just a, a part of a, a lesson. But this is the story. This was the tale of a young boy who at the age of about 14, now 13, every year, every summer, uh, when he was out of school, his parents would drive him to this other state where these, these huge grain fields, you know, they don't irrigate the wheat. It just mm-hmm. rains. Mm-hmm. And so he would stay all summer with his grandfather. And the barn and the, 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 the farm yard was in one section of the area. But on Monday morning, they would get up, grandpa and him, and they would drive 40 miles of dirt road out to these huge fields of wheat to work in the wheat farms. And one day he's out there. He'd been going up since he was about nine years of age and he was about 13. And at 13, he says, Grandpa, I need to talk to you about something. It's like a Tuesday evening after they come off the field. Sir. And uh, Grandpa, I'm having all these feelings. And he says, feelings? And, you know, Grandpa, he's a male, goes, feelings? What heck's feelings? Grandpa, I, I have all these feelings about girls. And now Grandpa's rolling his eyes, going, "Oh my, why me? You know, why didn't he talk to his parents about this? I don't know what to tell him. What do you mean feelings about girls? Well, 
I think about things I want to do with girls and I want them to do with me. And he's having all of these thoughts. And grandpa's going, I don't know what to tell this kid. So he puts him off. He says, okay, hang on. I'll tell you what, um, we're going home Friday, Saturday morning, after we've done our chores there at the farm, we're going to go fishing. You know that. Yeah. How about we talk about this on that fishing trip, it's, you know, just down to this river a couple of miles away. We'll talk about it that day. I'll, I'll, I'll have some questions for you or some answers for your questions. And the kid says, okay, grandpa. Okay. And then the grandpa's saying his prayers at night. Oh, what am I going to tell this kid? Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know what to tell him. This is, so he's, he's praying, he's talking, he's reading and we can't find it. What do I tell a kid about girls and those feelings that boys have? I, nobody ever told, I don't know what to tell him. Friday, they get home and he goes into his library, can't find anything in there. He gets on his knees again, prays again. Next morning, he gets up, he and his grandson go out and do the chores, and then they load up the truck and they're going fishing. They got a lunch and everything's going to have a great Saturday. And in his head, he's going, okay, maybe he forgot. Mm-hmm. Let's hope my grandson forgot. They get in the truck and they start driving out the road. They get a mile out of the farmyard and the kid says, well, Grandpa, what should I do with those feet? Uh-huh. <laughs> and just at that point, the grandpa looks over to the side and he sees this old barn that had been built 50, 60 years ago, maybe 70 years ago, dilapidated. And he looks at that barn and it reminds him how him and his grandfather and father built the barn. And he says, see that barn over there? And the boy says, yeah. He says, well, let me tell you this story. When I was about 12 years of age, we were living on the farm where we live now. And grandpa came out of town with a wagon and in the wagon behind the truck, he had a horse in it. He got out of the wagon, walked up to me with my mom and my dad with this rope around the horse's neck. And he hands me the rope and he says, son, this horse is now yours. You have to train it. And don't ever give it its head. And I'm looking at my grandpa going, how am I going to train a 1,200-pound horse? I'm 100 pounds soaking wet. I have a 1,200-pound horse, and I'm supposed to train it. What does that mean? I looked at my mom and I, my dad. I'm supposed to train it? Will you help me? I said, well, we'll help you, but you got to train it. And he, oh, okay. So he starts walking away with this rope around the horse's neck, and it follows him. He puts it in the corral. The next morning, he goes out there with a rope around. He walks around everywhere he go. He'd walk down into town with this rope following around the horse's neck, following him. It kept following him. This went on for weeks. His mom would say, you need to get it trained. I don't know how to get it trained. So what did he do? He got a blanket out of the shed. He put it on the back of it. It bucked and kicked, and the blanket fell off. He put it on again. Then he took some baling twine wrapped it on the blanket and started walking. The buck kicked it off and broke the yarn, put it, did it again, tied the horse up to the fence, put the blanket on it, tied it up. And it sat there and just shivered. It patted its neck. said, it's okay. Don't worry. It's okay. It's okay. And pretty soon now he's walking around with a horse with a blanket on its back. Kids are teasing him. What you can do with that horse, George? Uh. A couple of weeks later, he thinks I got to put a saddle on it. Grandma says, you can put that old saddle on it. I put the saddle on it. Tied it on, it bucked, it kicked, it tore the, 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 strap, the tight strap across the belly, you know. 
and it, it fell down. I thought it broke the horse's leg. I thought, oh no, we're going to put this horse out. It got back up. It ruined the saddle. Now I'm going to tell my dad it's ruining my life. Put it back on. Wouldn't work. Had to get another piece of leather. A couple of days later, they got it. Now he's got a horse with a rope around his neck and he's walking. Around. He'd walk to school with a horse. He wouldn't ride it. Finally, one day, he's been teased and mercifully says, I got to get on this horse. Ties it to the fence. Well, before that, he had to work a bridle into its mouth, tied its head to the fence. It tried to bite him. It tried to mash him up the fence. He finally got it on. Got it on. Now he's got the bridle on it. A couple of days after walking around, it's been now a month or better, maybe months. He climbs up on the horse while it's tied to the fence. The horse bucks him off just as soon as he gets on, boom, bucks him off. Mm -hmm. Lands on the floor. He gets up. I hate that horse. Why do I, why did he give me that horse? This is too hard. He hurts me. I can't do this. Mom said, you got to get on that horse. Next day, he's out there. He climbs the fence host. It bucks. He holds onto the steer. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And it sat there and just shook, bucked and kicked. It wouldn't kick him off and pat its neck. It's okay. It's okay. He said that horse probably bucked him off there four or five times, maybe more than that. And finally decided after a couple of weeks of getting bucked and kicked and finally settling down, he says, all right, I'm going to ride it. Got on it, undid the fence, the rope for the fence. He had the rope, took the rein, turned it. It took off like a shot, 100 miles an hour. He pulled back on the rein, it hit the brakes, and over the top of the head I came. Knocked on the ground, about broke my back. I hated that horse. This is too hard. I shouldn't have to do this. I got back, walked back. Next morning I got up. I was sore. I felt like my back was broken. My dad said, you got to get a train. So I do it again and again. And he bucks me off. He kicks. He right. Finally, he takes off. I get him to stop. He stops. After several months, I could ride him. I could steer him this way. I could steer him this way. Before the year was over, I didn't even have to give up at 5 in the morning and do my chores anymore. I give up six six thirty, because instead of getting up five and having it done by six thirty and walking to school an hour and a half away, I could sleep till six six thirty, do my chores, get on that horse and race. That horse would go as fast. I had the coolest horse in the world. Do you see that barn? Every piece of lumber, every window, every shingle on the roof was drawn in a wagon, behind on the wagon behind the horse from town. My dad could use that horse now. Instead of shooting one deer and call, coming at home that evening with the deer on his shoulders, he could take the horse, shoot three deer, load them up. We would have in one day all of the meat that would get us through the season. We'd salt it, put it in the, in the, in the cellar. The horse built this farm. It plowed the fields. It did everything. It created this entire place. It was the, one of the best things we could have ever had, and I trained him. Then he said, one day I got a little bit older. I was a senior. I was graduating from high school. I had graduated. One night I came home late, and I knew all I got to do is whistle the horse. He'll come to me. He's that well-trained. I raced him home, jumped off the horse, took off the blanket and the saddle, threw it on the, on the fence. Didn't even put him in the, in the corral. I didn't put hobbles on him like I usually do, either put him in the corral or the barn. I just turned him loose because I knew he'd be okay. I could go out in the morning and whistle. And I turned him loose because I was late. It was almost midnight. I knew he's a good horse. I didn't want to take care of him, so I turned him loose. I just, you know, I'll call him in the morning. The next morning at 6 a.m., I'm wakened by the cries out in the garden. I go outside, and my mother are in the garden 
crying, sobbing. That horse had gotten in the garden. Remember, this is fall now. It just about destroyed every squash, everything that we're putting, getting ready to put away into the food storage. Yeah, the food storage know. out there. Yeah. What do they call it? I can't remember. I used it just a minute ago. They, they couldn't because it destroyed it, it ate it. And then the clothesline where my grandmother, who'd come from Sweden, had her linens on the clothesline. It got into the clothesline, tore down the lines, all of her linens, all of her lake, laces, all the things she had knitted all of her life were in the mud. They'd been stepped on, crapped on, peed on. They were destroyed. My grandmother's just sobbing. She's an old woman crying. My mother's looking at me with fear on her eyes. I don't know if we'll make it through the winter because this horse destroyed everything. And it was at that moment when I realized what my grandfather had said, where he said, I'm giving you this wonderful horse and it'll do wonderful things for you. It'll train, it'll build a wonderful farm, family. It'll be a wonderful way to live life. But don't ever give it its head. And I realized I had given the horse its head. I turned it loose and I hadn't controlled it like I should have. And it just about destroyed me and my family. And then I turned to the pediatricians and say, and every one of you in here have a 1,200-pound horse strapped between your legs. You got to get it trade. It'll buck you off. It'll fight you. It'll kick you. But you got to learn to get it trained. And that's how I tell kids with their porn. They're going to grow up 11, 12. They're going to look at porn and go, oh, geez, I'm turned on. And they're probably going to get bucked off. And they're going to do some stupid stuff. And it may take them a while before they get it trained. It's not to condemn them. It's to train them. This is especially true with boys. What do we got? Nine out, 99%, nine out of 10 boys masturbate one, between 11 and 20. And a lot of male adults still married continue to masturbate to 70%, 50%. I can't remember exactly. And they come in to see me and they say, oh, no, I got a problem. And I say, you got to get it trained. Mm, that's a really good story. I like it. Okay. Well, that's it. We're done. I mean, is it too loaded of a question? How do they train it? How do you train it? If anyone has a problem with masturbatory behavior sure and they want to stop that yeah well the, the greatest way of fixing anything i'll, I'll just say this I, I think i've told this story before and i can talk about it in a hundred different ways when i was 12 i started drinking beer mm-hmm. i was told don't drink beer but i was drinking beer at 12. now let me ask you that will be my left hand I'm going to lift it and try to lift this beer and throw it away. Uh, I'm not going to drink anymore. Oh. The first time I ever drank, I came home and I said, I shouldn't be drinking. I'm only 12. I'm disappointed in my dad. Oh, no. I know my mom hates me. Uh, I'll pray to God. God, please. I'll, I'll never drink again. I got. I shouldn't be drinking it. Please, please, please. Two weeks later, those friends are there saying, hey, dude, yeah, you got some more beer. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. I'm going to go drink some more beer. Get home and said, oh, Father in heaven, please forgive me. Please forgive me. And then I'd slip and I'd go drinking, go drinking, slip up, go drinking. Promise I'd do it. I wouldn't do everything I could. I couldn't stop. I must have quit a hundred times in my adolescence and early twenties. Mm-hmm. I wanted to quit drinking beer. Now let me ask you, Libby. When I'm fifteen and I'm going out and drinking beer, did I feel loved by God? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm a sinner. Did I feel like my mother loved me? No. No, nah, she used to tell me she, she didn't like me very much. She, she said some things that weren't nice, she, but she hated me in that. Uh, when I got to be 15, you probably heard this story. Uh, this was Monday before I started high school, and my dad said, 
I can't bring you home because she says she'll leave. I need her there for the other kids, so you can't come home. I'll, I'll call your family, your mother's family who died in Colorado, and maybe we'll find some homes for you to go live in Colorado. And then got in his car and drove away. We're in the parking lot at the church, and I'm crying going, okay, well, <laughs> huh. my biggest concern, I've been out on my own enough times, I didn't have any clean underwear. Yeah. I told you the story. Is this in one of the earlier tapes? Uh, yes. Okay. Well, so did I tell you, my wife said, if you quit drinking beer, I'll marry you. Yeah. So what did I do? You quit drinking. I quit drinking beer. And I got married four mm -hmm. months later. Started drinking beer. And a year later, I started drinking beer again. Yeah. Did mom love me if I was drinking beer? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, now they ask me. They asked me in the area I was living in, we want you to teach this primary with these little right. kids at church. So I right. told this story. Yeah. Do you remember um, what the lesson was? Uh, no. Well, I was telling these eight-year-old little kids, do you know no matter what you ever do, Father in Heaven loves you? <gasps> well, he doesn't love me because I... No, no. He still loves you. Even if you're masturbating? Even if you're masturbating or drinking beer. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so he does, yes. Now, does that mean he says, Craig, I love you, even if you're drinking beer? Because I was still drinking beer, teaching uh -huh. primary. The bishop said, I want you to teach primary. Does God say, sure, I love you. It's okay to drink beer. No. No, he says, I love you, but I'm still not eating the vegetables. Craig, I love you, and I'll help you. But you need to quit drinking because you're going to be an alcoholic. Your wife's going to leave you. You're going to lose your family. If you don't quit drinking, it's going to be bad for you. Why am I telling you this? Because I love your butt, son. I'm not going to stop telling you what to do. I love you. But I'm going to still tell you, quit your damn drinking. Well, I started to realize with my right hand, God loves me. God loves me? I'll ask you, Libby. Does God love me? Yes. You know I'm a little rough around the edges. Sometimes I might swear a little bit once in a while. Yeah. <laughs> Does God still love me? Yes. I came to realize when I was 15 drinking beer, even though my principal told me I was white trash and I'd never mount anything. What was it, his name? Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, uh, he didn't love me. He even said, I was going to in prison. You're no good. I, I, I remember he told me white trash. I didn't know what white trash was. I told my friends I'd go drink beer with. I said, he calls me white trash after they say, hey, white trash personal, man. I didn't feel loved by him at 15, at 18, at 20, at 25, at 28. But now at 31, did God love me when I was 15 drinking? Mm -hmm. Yes. With God loving me. Do I need to drink to make me feel better? Or with his love, can I feel better knowing he loves me? Yeah. Loving myself, knowing God loves me. Even if my wife's mad at me, can I still be okay and say, he loves me? Mm -hmm. And I haven't had a drink in 36 years. I was 34. That's the last time I had a beer. Yeah. Now, let's now go to masturbatory behavior. Everybody has a struggle between the body and the spirit, mm -hmm. the red and the white, you've heard me talk. Mm -hmm. 
if you want to read from Dave McKay, he said it, he calls it the duality of mankind. He calls it the beast and the spirit. The duality of mankind is the plan of God. What? We have this plan between this carnal, nasty-ass body strapped on this pure divine spirit? Everybody has that? And he loves all of us? Even if the red's kicking our butt, he still loves us? But is he going to say, Craig, you still need to quit drinking? Yeah. If you can, you need to stop masturbating, dude. You know, you're losing track. You stop that focus more on loving your wife more white. You may find that if you go to the white, you can accomplish anything in the red, whether it's drinking, whether it's drugs, with depression. Mm-hmm. By cranking up the white, you can overcome the No. Well, I'll say this. Let's pretend for a moment, left hands up, I don't love me. Now I'd like you to criticize me. Say, Craig, you're a jerk. Craig, you're a jerk. I can't believe you're an effing blank and blank, 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 blank. I swear at you. I can yell at you. I defend myself with all of my red DTs. Remember mm-hmm. the carnal defensive templates? Yes. With this hand now, God loves me and I truly love me now. Criticize me again. Craig, you're a jerk. I'm really not, Libby. I do dumb stuff. Yeah. But I love me and God loves me. And I love you, even in your duality. Yeah. What? When you love yourself and you know that you're loved, will that help fill the cup? Yeah. And when your cup is full, is there anything that can't help you resolve things? Most of the people I treat is because they don't have anything in their cup. They've got holes in the cup, been shot in their holes from the crap that happened from their parents, from their childhood, from their spouse, their boyfriend, girlfriend, friends, all these holes in the cup. They've never patched the holes in their cup and filled it with his love, mm-hmm. the white stuff, mm-hmm. service, gratitude, love, agency. I'm not going to let that affect me. Go ahead, call me a name again. Oh, you're, you're a jerk. No, I'm not. I'm not going to let that define me. Only let him define me. Mm-hmm. He knows the struggle I have with both, but he knows that he loves me. Whoa, I can accomplish these kinds of things too? Do children know that they're still loved? A lot of people will think, well, he loves me, so I can keep doing that. Yeah. Well, you can, but he's still going to say to you, I'm never going to stop loving you. But when are you going to pull your head out of your butt and figure it out and get your life straight, for heaven's sakes? You need to knock that crap off and get healthy, for heaven's sakes. Yeah. I'm always going to love you. But just because I love you doesn't mean I love you so you can do anything. That's the vegetable story when we're in stage one. Well, my mom loves me because I can do everything I want. Mom says, well, I I do love my husband, so I guess I better do everything he tells me to do. Isn't it okay that she says, dear, I love you, but I'm not doing that. Mm -hmm. I still love you. But if I keep eating those vegetables I don't want to eat, I'll end up hating you, the vegetables, and me. Same thing with my kid. I love my children. I love them so much. They want to do all that crazy stuff, but I love them. So I guess I just better let, no, I'm still going to step in their throat and say, I'm not doing this crap. I still love you. Yeah. Because I love you so much, I'm going to keep telling you. I'm never going to stop loving you. Right. But a lot of people lose the love. And by the time they're 18, 20, 30, 40, they're so empty cupped. And what are they trying to fill their cup with? The red stuff. Oh, and they finally yeah. realize the red stuff may felt good for a moment, but truly the only thing that truly fills the cup, Libby, is the white stuff yeah. of this world. And every human being has this in them. They all have a cup and they all have the response of white 
to fill the cup. But the red is constantly taking them down the red path to make their butts captive. You're miserable. Life sucks because you're caught up to this and this and this upsets you and that. But when you go to the white, you say, he loves me. Uh Do you remember what the greatest gift is from David O. McKay? Agency. And what's the, when the lawyers, this is Matthew 22, said, Jesus, what's the great commandment? What do you say? Love God, love yourself, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, there's all three of them. Yeah. You got to do all three, not just one. A lot of people love themselves. They don't love neighbors and God. A lot of people love God and neighbors. They don't love themselves. Yeah. You got to have all three. Yeah. Agency and love, what my practice has been based on. Get free from all your goofy stuff. Love yourself more than ever. Does that help? Yeah, that does help. Just to go back to my question, it was about how people who are overcoming masturbatory behavior or I guess really anything, Mm -hmm. you're saying with God's help, it's a lot easier. And when you have this burden that you're just carrying in this one hand, the weight is so heavy and the shame and guilt and all of that makes it almost unbearable. Nobody loves you. And Lucifer said to me, Craig... You're no good scum. You failed God so many times. You can't make it back. You're trash. You're no, your parents hate you. Your mother tells you she hates you. You're hated. You're hated. You're hated. And somehow I found that God said, no, they're wrong. I still love you. Yeah. <laughs> and my life, whoa, what? <laughs> and well, then, and you want to feel that love. And so sometimes in turn, because it feels so good, you just naturally want to do what he wants you to do. Fertilize the seed. Yeah. So it just kind of grows that way. Oh, that was really nice, Dad. Thank you. Well, we're done. I needed that. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Hopefully that was helpful. And hey, we made it through sexuality. That was a feat. <laughs> and we didn't even have to drag Lee to <laughs> No, we didn't. We didn't. Yeah, and I, I learned you. a lot of good stuff. Love you too, Thank Dad. Thank you for doing this. Uh, uh, this would have happened so it's remarkable. The people tell me how wonderful you are. So thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> love you too. Okay. Awesome. Okay. Thanks. <laughs>